0: The purpose of this is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults.
1: From latest research updates to tips on navigating the health system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten.
0: And this is Lindsay. Welcome back. Today's episode, we'd like to talk about how to get the most out of your office visit. And we'll kind of focus on two different aspects of that. One is just how the visit does and should go in general. And two, the second part, we'll focus on... um,
1: What to expect from your physical exam, labs, um, the actual physical, and evidence behind the utility of these things. Okay, so let's start with
0: just kind of the general how a visit should go. It can be confusing to patients because when you show up for an appointment, you're given a scheduled time that you're supposed to be seen at. And what many people don't know is exactly what that time means, how long that time may be for, and what is going to happen during that time. Obviously, as a patient, you know the basics of it, but we're going to just give you a few more details so you have some insight to what's happening in the clinic around your visit.
1: I think what a lot of people um, don't understand is that there's rooming regulations and things that have to be done when the nurse is rooming a patient. So, Lindsay, what's rooming? What does that mean? (laughs) That's a good question. When the nurse or medical assistant um, takes you back to the room and takes vital signs and asks you lots of questions. And those questions are regulated by the governing body that accredits clinics.
0: Yeah. And so there's actually a lot more to it than just bringing you back to the room and checking your blood pressure there as you have probably noticed you get asked lots of questions sometimes you have surveys to fill out there are reasons behind these things then the next part of the visit is just the time and again depending on which clinic you go to you may have a time slot of 15 minutes it may be as long as 40 minutes depending again on where you're at
1: right i think mine split into 20 and 40 minutes I've been at clinics where they're all 30-minute visits and sometimes
0: we have opportunities to add in patients who have acute needs for much shorter visits such as 5 or 10 minutes with us. So during the visit what needs to happen, not only does that rooming by the nurse part of it happen, but then there's the time with the physician and again, it the time ranges significantly. What we don't always think about is what the physician needs to do, either in the room or outside of the room with you, too, which can include putting in orders, um, following up on tests, looking at lab results, and
1: documenting everything that you and your physician talked about. Documenting has become a a big deal in the last 20 years as well with the invention of the um, electronic health records, which has made physicians have to put in their own orders instead of just saying something, and somebody else does a lot of the work. Um, we have to put in orders. We have to put in the medications and into the computer system and send those to the pharmacy. Um, we have to change your, you know, past medical history and your family history all on that visit. Um, we have to navigate through the computer system to do all those things.
0: Yeah, so the the electronic medical system has certainly added value in terms of being able to locate past information relatively quickly, but it also adds a lot of um, maintenance and work for us in order to keep your chart accurate and up to date. Right. So how do you get the most out of the time that you have with your doctor, given that the time really can be limited? and
1: probably many of you come
0: in with more than one concern
1: right I think it's important to have a list of your concerns when you go but I think you have to prioritize that list and be comfortable with the fact that you may not get through all of your list depending on how long it is and can you talk more about that Lindsay why why is it not
0: a good idea to come in with a list of eight to ten things or why what's the difficulty in that
1: I think it often makes us run late and so then we have problems with the next patient and if you're that next patient, then you don't want time taken away from you because the person before you took up too much time and and it kind of cascades down the whole day. Um, And then we kind of get lost in, in the little things. So I think that's why it's important to prioritize and make sure you're presenting us with what matters most to you to get accomplished in the, in the visit.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think um, knowing that your doctor wants to do a good job, or I should say your clinician, your provider, wants to do a good job with whatever your concerns are, um, but if you can focus those concerns down to maybe two or three things, they will be addressed with more thoroughness and more depth than if you have a big long list that really doesn't allow you or your doctor to get um, to dive in deep into those concerns.
1: And, and I think we do want to get through your list. Um, and so the things that maybe don't make it that day will certainly work hard to, to get you in an appropriate time frame to discuss the, the other issues that, that we didn't get to.
0: Yeah. So if I'm a patient coming in and I do have two or three concerns, how, how do I bring that up to my provider? What's the best way to do that? so that they know what's important to me. Sometimes I feel patients maybe are intimidated or just are, have things that they're maybe a little embarrassed about talking about. What's what's
1: the best time to bring those things up? I think at the start of the visit is the most appropriate time to talk about what what matters most to you, because we often find that when we feel like we're wrapping up a visit and that we're all through, and we call it the hands on the door, to leave the room is often when people come up with the concern that they have that's that's most pressing in their mind and they're bringing it up when we're we feel like we've on our side finished the conversation um and so that becomes difficult because then we have to sit back down and and spend more time so it's It's important that you bring it up at the beginning of the visit. Absolutely, I agree. And I think a lot of times we as clinicians come into
0: the room already with an agenda in our mind of, you know, today I feel like I need to address the diabetes, I need to address the blood pressure. So I try to elicit any concerns, but if that doesn't come up right away, then I don't save enough time to really do a nice
1: job um, digging into whatever other concerns might arise. And I always try to start my visit you know, you're here for a six month follow up. Do you have any concerns? So I always try to to leave that open for you to to this is my thoughts for what to, is going to happen today. But what are your thoughts for, for what's going to happen today and how can we get both of those things accomplished?
0: Yeah. So, again, I think to summarize this coming in with an agenda of maybe two or three things that you feel are important and you want to make sure you get addressed for the day. And then bringing those issues up right at the start of the visit, so that your your provider knows what you want to make sure gets talked about.
1: And I think even if you're there for what's considered an annual exam, but something is very concerning happening in your life right then that you need to talk about that is you know physical concern, then maybe you change what that visit's about and you say okay, so we're going to focus on this problem and figure this out and we'll do your annual exam next time. That's a really good point. I
0: think that having flexibility in your agenda or in your clinician's agenda is very important, especially if something does come up. So yes, if you have a big concern, maybe that day don't expect your regular, what we call physical exam, but then ask your doctor to address the issue that you're worrying about.
1: Now maybe that brings us to what to expect from your physical exam or your annual or wellness visit. And I think this is, um, I recently sat in on a patient advisory council meeting that was to discuss this. And basically because our clinic, annual exam, I think there's a lot of concerns because this has changed over the last 10, 15 years, what's recommended. And so today we'll talk a little bit about why those things have changed. Yeah, I think this is this is a really fascinating topic, and it's one that
0: I personally struggle with a little bit because I've always put a lot of value in physical examination findings, and I struggle with letting go of some of that. But we'll talk about the why and the research behind what the changes are and where, where preventive care is moving.
1: I think in the past, you know, you've gone to see your doctor annually, and in that visit they did... A whole bunch of labs, including urine, sometimes EKGs, um, blood counts, and cholesterol panels, and all of these things. No matter whether you were, you know, twenty or eighty, and we just did it on everybody. And there's been some large studies, mainly out of the VA, I believe, mm-hmm. that looked at at all the studies out there on the usefulness of the information we get from all the parts of the physical exam.
0: Yeah, and what we found is somewhat surprising in that a lot of what we were doing that we thought was good preventive medicine really didn't add a lot of value to the care that we were giving and certainly did not improve outcomes. That means didn't improve people's health or how they did in the long run. So, right. They weren't making you live better longer. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the annual physical exam, just for a little history, actually has been around since the 1940s, which is a long time. And that was when kind of we started shifting medical care from just treating illnesses to actually trying to think about preventing illnesses. And again, as Lindsay said, there have been some large studies more recently on when we do all these things, we think that we're adding value to people's care. And the question is, are we? What, what actually is important and valuable in a yearly preventive
1: exam? And it's quite surprising, even to us physicians, clinicians on our side, what, what actually uh, ended up showing value. And I think it's surprising to us in, in a few ways, too. It, it's hard for us to to not want to see patients every year, one, to build that patient-physician relationship. Um, we like to establish that relationship and get to know you over time, and so it, it's hard to to maybe take away from that. Um, but I think that comes up in, in all this as well, is do we even have to see you every year? That's a great point, yeah. And so... Again,
0: for right now, when we're talking about the annual exam, we're talking about people coming in who are otherwise feeling well without complaints, who are just coming in for a yearly review of their health. So they have no symptoms of concern that they're bringing up. And obviously, this may not be you. But for somebody who's not having complaints, there are really only Three components to the yearly exam, the, or the yearly visit that are really supported by good, strong research that they do make a difference in your overall health. The first is checking your blood pressure, and that should be done every two years. And again, that's somebody without symptoms who doesn't necessarily have hypertension, but somebody who's otherwise healthy. Um, the next one is checking a weight, and it doesn't,
1: we don't necessarily know how frequently, but every year or two years is a good idea. And then uh, for the woman, it would be Pap smears for sexually active women with a cervix, um, and it kind of varies the, the timing, but three to every three to five years, up until the age of sixty-five.
0: And so those three components—the blood pressure, weight, and Pap smears, when appropriate—are really the only things that we do that are strongly supported by research. The um, other things that we that you may have had done. Um, such as a thyroid exam or abdominal exam for, again, just checking as a screening, really are very low yield in terms of making you
1: live longer or live a better, healthier life. Right. And I, I think I see mostly patients over the age of 75 and they really want their urine checked every year. And I, I have to caution them. I think there's a lot of new evidence about urine We used to think it was sterile, meaning that there was no bacteria that lived in our urine. You know, it was clean. But new evidence recently actually says that that there are normal bacteria, just like there's normal bacteria that lives in our gut and on our skin, there's bacteria that can normally live in your um, bladder and in your urine. And so checking a urine without symptoms could possibly grow bacteria, and that isn't causing an infection. It's what actually lives with you and helps keep you regulated. Right, and that could lead to
0: unnecessary treatment. So it's really not a helpful thing to do if you're not having
1: symptoms. And they there was another study recently that showed giving antibiotics, one course of antibiotics alters your gut flora for greater than one year. And we're finding more and more about the gut floor and how that protects us and keeps us healthy. Um, That's kind of a hot, hot place for um, research right now. It
0: might have to be the topic of a whole additional episode. Yes, because it's definitely there's a lot out there on antibiotics. So coming back to the physical exam, if you're over 65, it's probably a good idea for your clinician to listen to your heart or check your pulse periodically to check for arrhythmias or other pos- other problems there um but again there are a lot of things that we often do and again going back to people without symptoms that are not helpful and these include include checking lymph nodes checking the arteries in the neck for blockages feeling the liver or spleen checking reflexes um,
1: all of these things, breast really, exams, breast exams, all of these things really are not supported by research. Right. I think the breast exam is another hard one, um, to wrap your head around. And, and that's only a breast exam is not recommended only if you're getting your, uh, appropriate screening through mammograms.
0: Right. So once you start your yearly or every other year mammogram screening, Then a clinical breast exam by your provider really has low value in terms of helping you find breast cancer early, helping you live longer, even if you do have breast cancer. It's unfortunately a fairly low yield test
1: that we do. But again, this is not when, if you come to us and say, my breast is sore, I found a lump, this does not apply. That becomes a symptom that we're evaluating. Absolutely. So we're focusing again on if you have no symptoms,
0: the uh, most of the physical exam is really very low yield.
1: What about pelvic exams, Lindsay? Yeah, that's the other one that has also not been shown to, uh, you know, pelvic eg- exam besides the pap smear, which is recommended every three to five years, um, would include feeling the ovaries. And unfortunately, that has not been shown to be a good way to um, to evaluate and prevent and screen for ovarian cancers, and so it's it's not not been something that's been useful for asymptomatic women in an annual exam.
0: Yeah, so I think you know when we do a lot of these things, we think of them as screening tools. So breast exam would be looking for breast cancer. Part of the abdominal exam may be theoretically looking for pancreatic cancer, the pelvic exam looking for ovarian cancer, rectal exam looking for prostate cancer in men. But the goal when we do any kind of screening is to be able to make a difference and actually have a better outcome than if we don't do the screening. So
1: that means finding the cancer sooner and then being able to treat it in a way that lets you live longer. Exactly. And so a
0: lot of these exam things, we can do them, but a, they're not very good at detecting cancer. We're not very good at feeling cancer in the body. And b, even if we do, we have not been able to improve how people do with those diagnoses.
1: And I think the prostate screening for men is an interest brings up an interesting part of this discussion, and that, um, doing the PSAs, the blood tests for prostate cancer screening annually, had us actually diagnosing many cancers in men that we found over time would not have harmed them if we hadn't of discovered them, yet we harmed them because of the treatment we gave them, right? So uh, they ended up having a prostate resection, Um, And now they're incontinent and have leakage and impotent. And so all these things we did that we thought were helping let them live longer, give them a longer length of life, but we actually caused them harm and discomfort and a nuisance of a problem. And, And through research found that that they would have lived just as long without those problems if we hadn't looked for that cancer.
0: Yeah, so prostate cancer may be a bit of a different type of cancer. Well, it is a different type, but different sort of progression for most cases. Right. Where most most males, if they live long enough, would and we did a biopsy of their prostate, would have some cells, some prostate cancer cells within their prostate. And most of those men would never go on to develop symptoms or problems or die from the prostate cancer. That's not to say that you can't have more aggressive cases of prostate cancer, but most of the time it's fairly
1: slow growing and slow moving. And like we've said again, this is for asymptomatic. So I always ask over the last year, have you had any changes in your urinary stream force, your ability to start and stop, hesitancy, dribbling, Um, getting up at night to go and and if you haven't had a change in the last year then then doing that screenings not gonna be worthwhile right
0: and if you do have a change then that changes the clinical direction significantly and that's true of any of these systems that we talked about
1: right so I think we do we get most parts of the exam that people I think we did so
0: what do you do Lindsay when people come in for their yearly exam because this is one that I
1: still <laughs> I still really have a hard to. time with, and I see seventy five and old patients who are seventy five and older, and so actually I still offer them breast exams because I know that they feel uncomfortable. A lot of people feel uncomfortable if we don't, so I try to explain that it's it's been found to not be beneficial, but I will do it if it makes you feel more comfortable, um, and and quite a few people still want that, and and I'm happy to do that, um, but. Uh, labs. I don't, I'm really doing a lot fewer labs every year. I certainly don't do a lipid panel every year, even if you have high cholesterol, but are, it's been shown to be controlled on a cholesterol-lowering medicine, then I'm not going to check it every year because that's a new recommendation. So yeah, you don't have to maybe follow an, that one yearly. Another discussion too, but I think it fits for annual. Um, so I'll throw in some kidney checks now and again, depending on what med- blood pressure medicines you're on. Um, so what you're saying is I don't do pelvic exams. I listen to to their heart and lungs.
0: You try to focus your exam much more on what's relevant to their health conditions.
1: Right. And I think what's hard for internal medicine is that most of our patients, um, I think have multiple chronic diseases that we're managing. So in an annual exam, We're focusing on on how we're managing those things and less on I guess the I mean we want to do the preventative things and we need to make sure we're doing that regularly but there's not necessarily a set upon set out time to do that I guess
0: yeah so when you're when you're seeing a let's say a 60 year old female and she has no symptoms but is just worried about ovarian cancer and requests a pelvic exam what's what does that conversation sound like
1: I think that's hard. I think I first try to to know why she's concerned. Um, is it because she is having symptoms truly or is it because a friend recently was diagnosed and we try to talk those things out um, and I try to to explain the data and, and um, what is useful to finding that cancer. Um, but ultimately, if I feel like her worry, right, if I haven't been able to calm her fears with our discussion i'll ultimately do it i guess
0: and do you worry then about giving false reassurance by doing the exam when we know it's
1: not a good test for ovarian cancer right and hopefully um i got that across in my discussion with her but it's hard when you're limited with time right to have a really good discussion about is this going to benefit you Absolutely, yeah.
0: And again, this is definitely something that I struggle with because I find the exam to be valuable, and I have certainly diagnosed things in asymptomatic people based on my exam findings. But based on the research we have, that probably doesn't actually affect how they do in terms of their overall health. And so I have a hard time letting go of some of these things. Yeah. What are you doing mostly in your annual exam? Well, as you said, most of our patients who come in in internal medicine are not completely asymptomatic and have a few medical conditions that we're treating. So in my older population, they usually want me to check their ears because a lot of right. times they sure. have a lot of wax. Yeah. Yep. Um, I will do a heart and lung exam. I offer the breast exam and counsel women that if they're doing mammograms, the clinical breast exam probably doesn't add a lot of value, but I'm certainly willing to do it, um, and I usually do still do an abdominal exam, and I certainly check for edema, looking for signs of heart failure. So again, I do some things that are people are asymptomatic and not complaining about, but I feel like helps me know right. how they're doing, um, but maybe it's not all based on research.
1: What do you personally do for your own health? Oh well,
0: I um, I don't go in yearly. Thankfully, I've been relatively healthy, and so I go in periodically for what we would call an annual exam, but it's not quite annual. And I think that's acceptable and appropriate okay. for
1: somebody who's relatively healthy. I think I think so. I I certainly go in for my um, regular scheduled Pap smear, my mammograms, and I get my blood pressure checked. Here and there, which probably ends up to be maybe every other year. Yeah, it's yep. nice now because the dentist checks your blood pressure, right? Yeah, you can get it taken care of, it. right? Um. So yes, I because I'm healthy and I'm try I try to do all the preventative health things, but I'm definitely not going in for an annual exam every year. Right. So.
0: What age group is that okay for, would you say? I mean, I definitely tell my other relatively young adult, healthy patients that they don't have to see me yearly if they want to push it out to 18 months or even two years. That's That's appropriate, unless something comes up, of course. Right.
1: I don't know. If we know a a good time frame for that, I would certainly probably want to see my patients annually, maybe 60 and above, but I don't have good evidence for that that's just a feeling right right i
0: agree yeah and certainly as they get older and have more health concerns then i like to see them more than
1: annually right and this depends on i think the the chronic diseases that we're treating and how well are they controlled do you have high blood pressure that's been well controlled on one medicine and we're monitoring blood pressures and it's still well controlled and how many other things are piled up on that yeah I would probably see most of my patients, 75 and older, who p- the majority probably have three to four chronic medical conditions, including hypertension, um, coronary artery disease, COPD, congestive heart failure, I probably, diabetes, how did I forget that? I probably see them twice a year at least, mm-hmm. but that's because we're managing their chronic disease. Absolutely. Yep. I agree. And if you
0: as listeners have questions or comments that you'd like to add to this discussion, please feel free to email us too.
1: What about, I? we get a lot of questions about this Medicaid, Medicare, sorry, Medicare wellness exam.
0: Yes, the welcome to Medicare exam, right? This is one that I kind of scoffed at in the past because I felt like it was really of low utility. And maybe that's because most of my patients coming in are symptomatic with one thing or another. The welcome to Medicare exam or appointment doesn't really let you do a physical exam um, in order to bill for that. And Medicare doesn't charge patients anything for it. Um, we have to follow their requirements, which includes the recommendations that we listed, which would be a blood pressure check, a weight. And I think that's about it
1: in terms of physical examination. Right. And then the rest of them They have of it, lots of requirements about you know, discussing safety. So are you wearing your seatbelt and your helmet? And your what is your alcohol consumption? And um, what's your diet like? And are you getting your exercise? So all very good, important things. But that's what... They are offering for free, and the minute we say, and how is your blood pressure going that we're treating, then that becomes a an un, a, a visit that you're going to have to pay for. Right, exactly. So,
0: yes, historically, that's not something I've done for my patients, again, because... I would say 99% of my patients have other medical conditions that we do need to address at that appointment. But um, I do work with nurse practitioners and PAs who will occasionally do those appointments for their healthier patients. Right. And again, as a patient, if that's something you want, you just need to know going in that that really doesn't include a physical exam. And that's okay if you don't have symptoms for the reasons we've talked
1: about. And it doesn't include... Um, discussion and treatment and management of your chronic diseases that we're caring for or symptoms that we look into. Exactly. Those would have up. to be a separate visit. That you would be charged for. Absolutely. The regular charge. Right. So that's an interesting thing that Medicare came up with that sounds really good, but in the end, and it, it is good, but in the end, it ends up not being quite what people I think, think it is exactly. when they read about it. Absolutely.
0: So, Lindsay, let's go back to that panel of patients that you met with the other week. What other questions came up that might be helpful for other people to hear?
1: I think an interesting one for me was someone ask, what do we as the clinicians, physicians, review about them before we go into the room how much time do we have to review and what do we what do we know about them before we go into the room and see them that's
0: a really good question i think patients come with different expectations about how much their clinician is going to know about their chart
1: right and i think so many things go into this one it's probably clinician physician dependent what you do but i i told them what i typically do and i have the advantage of i think It depends on how long you've been in practice at your specific clinic. Um, I have the advantage of actually knowing my patients quite well the majority of the time right now, so I don't have to look up a huge amount. But what I do review right before going in is, have they seen somebody else since the last time I saw them? So did they see a cardiologist? Did they go into the emergency department? Did they go into the walk-in clinic? Uh, Where have they been since I last saw them? So I try to review
0: that. Absolutely. I think I would do a similar thing. I Generally, you know, I may have from 30 seconds to three minutes, depending on how my day is running and how far behind I am, um, to review things. And I usually like to skim my last notes so that I know what changes right. we made and what things I want to follow up on. And then similarly, try to find out what has happened in the interim with their health and who, what other specialists or ER visits or admissions they've
1: had. But I have to admit, if you're being uh, squeezed into one of those acute spots and it says cold symptoms, I probably haven't looked that much up about you uh, before entering the room because I'm just going to simply evaluate those symptoms that you've come concerned
0: with. Absolutely. And there are certainly days where if I have a patient who's got something major going on that takes more time than what they're scheduled for, I will walk into the room and I hope that I can address your concerns and look up your information on the computer
1: without necessarily having previewed things beforehand. And unfortunately, I think we've, fortunate or unfortunate, we've become good at multitasking in the office. And I know some people don't like when we're looking at the computer when we're talking to you, but I think we've been forced to become good at listening to you and then you said something that sparked something in in my brain that said, okay, I need to review this. What was their last lab number this? Or when did they have that surgery for this? And so I'm looking up those little things that are pertaining to what you've just told me. So I'm not ignoring you. I'm actually gathering more information that I need from the computer as you're telling me things. Absolutely. And it doesn't then require our
0: patients to necessarily remember the dates and times of every procedure or every past event because we do have access to it at our fingertips. Right. So blessing and a curse. Absolutely. Absolutely. If I could get away from the computer, I would, but it's also very helpful at times. Right. And yeah, so... I'm sure that other clinicians review things differently. I know that some of our newer APPs, that would be nurse practitioners or PAs, even perhaps the night before they see you and also our residents will review charts and sometimes even start their documentation. So it definitely varies depending on how long someone's been in practice, how well they know their patients, and then also just how much time they have that day. Right. All right, well... Looking back to last week, we did have a follow-up question um, regarding kind of what our role is as primary care providers.
1: Right, well, I think the question was, I have a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and a neurologist, and what's your job? What's your role in, in my care when I have all these specialists on board? Yeah, and that can be a difficult question. I know that
0: Not a lot, but some of our patients end up feeling like they are going to the doctor all the time. And that's kind of their social life. And whether or not they like it, they spend time at the office, you know, once a month for sure.
1: And I always like to think about the zoom in, zoom out approach. And I think when you see a specialist, they are experts at zooming in. On one thing so if it's a cardiologist they zoom in to the heart and the cardiovascular system and they aren't necessarily very good at zooming out because that's their specialty and it's the primary care physicians job to zoom in on all of your problems but then to zoom out and look at you as a whole person to look at all the things you're going through um, how you're feeling today what's your quality of life what matters to you and to put it all together so I think sometimes the cardiologist may want to push your heart failure medicines and keep pushing and keep pushing because it's best to max out those medicines to help your heart pump the best. But it's my job to look at the whole, and you're saying you're dizzy, you're dizzy, you're dizzy, and it might be because we've pushed those medicines too far and. So I, I can, even though I'm not the specialist, I should because I'm zooming out and looking at the whole you and I want you to feel good today and have a good quality of life today. I want you to live longer too, but there's got to be some give and take in that. And so so I should take it upon myself as your primary care to to try to cut back on those things to get you to feel better. Absolutely. So coordinating
0: and kind of have a having a big picture view of how things are going and also a big picture view of the medications because one specialist might be doing one thing and another doing another thing and it's our job to really like you said look at that big picture and see how we can not only optimize your health but optimize your quality of life right now today in addition to thinking about how you're going to be doing 10 20 years from today
1: and i think certainly you need to see specialists for for certain things sometimes we keep going to those specialists when, when maybe it's not necessary. And I think that's something that's also a hard topic to discuss, but, but important. Absolutely. So I can think
0: of several examples of patients who have diabetes and were in the hospital and for whatever reason their diabetes was significantly uncontrolled during that hospitalization. So during their admission, they were seen by, the, by an endocrinologist who is a specialist for diabetes And then they were scheduled for a follow-up with that endocrinologist after their discharge from the hospital.
1: But I know you're very capable of treating that diabetes because that's what you were trained to do. Absolutely. And so
0: once things have calmed down from their acute illness, we do try to have the discussion of, you know, I'm very comfortable taking care of this. I think that we can manage it and I'm appreciative of our specialist's help when we need it. Absolutely. But there are certain times where we don't always need it, too.
1: Sometimes the old saying goes, too many
0: cooks in the kitchen, I think, applies Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, again, I think that we as clinicians, it's our job in primary care to know what our limits and our boundaries are. And when we need help, then we ask for it by sending you to a specialist. Exactly. But there are certainly things in internal medicine that perhaps we're more comfortable with than our colleagues in family medicine. And there are things that they're going to be much more comfortable with than we are, too. Exactly.
1: So now we've come to that fun part of our segment where we talk about How we practice what we preach
0: Yeah, and today I was going to talk about one of my favorite exercise apps So, I sort of consider myself a runner I run a few days a week I wish it were more than what I do But I love running It's a great stress reliever It's a great exercise, obviously And it's just a nice way to calm my mind after a busy week or busy day Yeah So, I have fallen in love with the nike running app and i don't know if many of you have checked it out but it's pretty awesome it not only tracks your runs and tracks your speed and your distance but also has many guided runs and some of them are speed runs some of them are long runs they also have a headspace collection with andy puttycomb of headspace that are just outstanding Um, it's a great way to unwind either at the beginning or the end of the day and I think I've become a better runner because of their coaching. So I think everyone should check it out.
1: Tell me more about this Headspace thing.
0: Yeah, so Headspace is an app on um, that you can find that's on meditation. And Andy Puttycomb was he uh, was searching for. Who he wanted to be, I think, and he became a Buddhist monk for a little while and then decided that life wasn't for him, but he wanted to go out and kind of live meditation in the real world. And he developed this app called Headspace, which is if you ever want to do some meditation or relaxation, it's a great way to unwind. So He has actually partnered with Nike Running and has done several runs where they talk you along as you're running and help you meditate or relax or get your mind off your busy day. And they're fabulous. I just can't get enough of them.
1: Yeah. All right. I'll have to try that one out.
0: Yep, definitely. I recommend that to everyone. So Nike Running app, it's free right now. It um, has some perks that you can sign up for, some goals and different achievements that you can aim for. And its it's pretty fun. There's a real community within the app. So it's pretty neat.
1: All right. Great. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. We'd love to have your email with questions, comments, feedback, or even suggestions for future episodes. You can contact us at mail at everythingdoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G-D-O-C com.
1: You can also contact us through our website at
0: everythingdoc.com. And remember, if you do send us an email, we will not use your name unless you
1: explicitly give us permission to do so. Links can be found on our show notes for this episode on our website, which is EverythingDoc.com.
0: And we'd love to have you subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
1: Please check us out next, uh, two weeks from now, for our podcast on cardiovascular disease prevention. Thanks again for listening.